Let's get into our teaching tonight. We're in Matthew. I will be springboarding back and forth on Sundays between the Gospel of Matthew and our teachings in 1 Kings. Part of that is to whet the appetite of those who know uh, systematic theology or the teaching of each book of the Bible by chapter and verse, but it also enables those who favor uh, more popularly the Sundays and miss out what we do as well on that Thursdays. These are very important. The teaching tonight's going to be called, We Want to See a Sign. We want to see a sign. We're going to pick it up in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 38. Chapter 12, verse 38, pretty much where we left off in our last teaching. Then some, in verse 38, of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That's probably the way it was said. We want to see a sign from you. Now, as I pause on that verse, it is one of those things you have to just shake your head because the Lord had been performing signs in the form of miracles that attested to his God headship. He was God incarnate, sent from heaven, prophesied in the book of Isaiah. We've said that before, 700 years in advance. We know that as well. And it just seems that nothing satisfies them at all. And so it tells us something that probably was very likely an inheritance, meaning that it's the way their fathers behaved. When Israel started off, it actually did so by the footstep of one man, and that was Abraham. Chapter 12 in Genesis, and I'm just going to go there very quickly, tells us what he did. The reason that this is important in anchoring these teachings in certain passages is just for this confidence we have and the comparisons that we learn from. So in 12, this is what we know. Now the Lord had said to Abram, there you go. The Lord had said to Abram, the Lord had said to Abram. The Lord might have said to Abram, yeah, it wasn't a might of. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, verse 4, the exclamation of obedience. So Abraham departed as the Lord spoke or had spoken to him. We'll stop there. Abraham departed 
as the Lord had spoken to him. And one of the things that we need to know is that the Lord was pulling him from a hedonistic, idolatrous community in which there's no explanation concerning what he had done to garnish such favor from God. And that's the amazing thing about God is that his favor cannot be discounted to any one of us who at some point in time may have been in no less a position, if not actually, perhaps mentally, perhaps in not being one that had really tuned in to the Lord, though his word was evident and inarguable. And years passed and other years passed and people passed by us on pilgrimage to the house of the Lord. And so it's really important to know that he was being pulled from his worldly understanding. He connected with God with an affirmative action, which was to remove himself from any persuasion contrary to the word of God and to the will of God in his life. It doesn't tell us that he had any other encounter with the Lord. Not at all. It could be assumed that on nights that were quiet, mornings that were fresh, he may have been talking to himself in a manner that the Lord heard the whisper of his heart. But we don't have anything to validate that. What we do know is he allowed himself to exercise what would be defined as faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. When I make mention of Kevin in that regard, that was an exercise of faith, and his pilgrimage actually was engaged in every visit that he made in establishing a home that could not be his in the definite. And so we prayed for them. And the reason that that's important is that the Lord is a rewarder of those who exercise faith and belief, who believe in his word. It doesn't mean that there are not stringent exercises even that exhaust us in the doing. It's just a part of the industry of living. But when you get to see the reward for a man that steps out in faith and you realize that you really were a part of God's plan by acknowledging, Kevin, wow, good to see it right on. And then to see it unfold in stages because it has been in stages the one stage is leaving a fire department in Torrance that he's only known most all his life, the fire department, but the community. That's actually very significant here. Get out of your country and from your family, from your father's house, from your firehouse. Follow me. And so he has. The scribes and the Pharisees would have had this evidentiary. They would have looked back on Abraham's life as stellar. 
because he would have been by intention the procreator of faith through his actions of belief. Every incident that he moved through, which either was of consequence or of blessings, was an act in which by his free will he made choices. But the predominant evidence we have is that he endeavored to choose God's will over simply another way. He made some errors going another way, but he followed correction according to Yahweh. Now, I wanted to anchor us there because when Jesus is hearing this question, he knows what their condition is. It's without living faith, saving faith. It's actually indictable in what they are suggesting right now, for they have no ignored everything that was essentially for their eyes to see, for their ears to hear. What more could they want or need? So it does tell us something about the human condition. We are prone to want to be rewarded with what we see to evaluate what we will believe and ultimately make our decisions on what we think the outcome will be. I've done it before, but I think I'm much more limited on the frequency of that than perhaps others maybe. And part of it is that I know that <clears throat> faith is that requirement of the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Meaning that God is making a provision that allows your belief not to be in doubt. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. You don't see it, but God's not saying you don't have the evidence to doubt me. You have evidence that supports what I'm going to do in your life. And life does run by a clock, and that clock marks the fullness of a day, and days run into days and weeks and months and years. And God doesn't apologize for any of those things because what he's doing in that interim period in establishing yourself to inherit the promise with gratefulness and tribute is he's teaching us. He's working on things such as patience, which can be identified in the word as endurance. Athletes and believers are trained to be enduring, not simply endearing. Oh, you're so wonderful, warm and squishy, and you say the right things. That's endearing. <laughs> and that's important. I love being warmed and fuzzied and squishied by believers. But in particular, those who believe and who as well have endured, their language has authority based on what they've gone through. So we answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
So these scholars would have known that reference. I won't go there in that it would take too long, but only to say that Jonah was a notable prophet, a man who the Lord could trust to do his will. The exception being is that he was one who had become biased against a people who were notorious for violating civil rights, humanitarian causes. They were just a wicked people, the Ninevites were. All of them, probably not all of them, but what does it take to make a majority power? And probably those that had the greatest power also were those who had the greatest influence on what generations of their populace would grow up believing was normal. And that's one of the things that we see today. We can say, even as the Lord does say, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given. Well, if your God is who you say he is, then may he prove that apart from the fables and the books that you hold. The culture would say that. Give us evidence. Well, he did. Real easy evidence. It's called a baby in the womb. Inarguable. And yet they argue. You want to talk about a sign and wonder? When the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply, from that point on, it was the miraculous work of conception in the womb. But Jonah was told to do one thing. I want you to go and preach to those vile people. That wicked and evil, adulterous generation that has ignored the things that I've shown them, because God does, revealing through all creation, even through procreation, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and Godhead through the things that he has created so that no one has an excuse. Paul pins in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 forward. And so we've got a generation that is ignoring the obvious. We've got a generation that is evil and wicked in trying to redesign through a schemata that is not scientifically justified at all. Gender neutrality is completely contrary to God. For in Genesis 1 and 2, he clearly says that in the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them. So it's inarguable, though some would say, well, that's just your book. No, it's deeper than that. The evidence is rooted in nature. The reason that I say that is because that sign, that wonder has been given by God preemptively for everything that culture says defiantly, prove it to us. Well, the next proof in denying the things of God, and in particular what we'll be sharing in the next couple of weeks, which is God who came down definitively as Jesus and as a greater prophet than Jonah was or any here. And this is his word on it. 
the next sign and wonder they will get is the church being caught up and a judgment coming down and an evil never known yet by the world robed in politics and piety who will be literally an incarnate version of Satan empowered by him. And we know that that time is near, if not presently formatting itself. So what's the deal with Jonah in terms of bringing him up? Because he did have a saving faith in the Lord, even enough to say, after disobeying, buying a ship, and moving contrary away from Nineveh, he was able to say, this is of God, the storm. It's going to sink this ship, toss me over, and peace will return. That's a paraphrase. He knew God to the degree that he was able to self-correct and say, toss me over. That was faith. It meant literally, I'm going to my death. As a result of my disobedience, this is the predicament we are all in. Throw me over. But that isn't what happened. He didn't die. God had a taxi cab for him. It was a whale. Jesus alluded to this saying, as Jonah was in, he uses the depths of the earth. The bowels of a fish's belly. Wherever he was, it was a large enough sea creature that he was kept in isolation. He was mingled with digestive juices, some have suggested. And on a given day, after three nights in that probably very stenchy belly, he is expectorated out on the shoreline where he comes out as a bleach blonde prophet. He probably has holes in his robes from the acidity. If you want to talk about pH water, he needed it then. That's very popular today. And what he knew he had to do was to comply as an exercise of faith. He realized that he was being used right now to be the sign and wonder to a community of heathens that he hated desperately. And when they saw him because he preached the message of repentance and they did repent in sackcloth, in ash, on their faces, crying, because he complied and moved forward in an expression of faith, it is what probably has been presumed one of the greatest world evangelistic events that ever took place. There's one yet to come. But the reason that that's important is because, as Jesus mentions him, Jonah would have been an historic figure as a prophet of God, not to be denied. And the Lord's using him to account for basically a revival that as he looks at these guys, he says, that's what you need. I come before you robed in the righteousness of my father. I've been sent from heaven. I am greater than Jonah. 
And the sign and wonder that you will see is that as Jonah was in the belly of that fish, I will be entombed in the earth three days and rise again. And he's basically saying, watch. You just watch. What they wanted to do was to be absent of that ever happening because they couldn't correlate essentially who he says he is with what it is he has already done. And now this very veiled look back at Jonah and he's basically saying in his mind and through those words, I know your intentions are to kill me, but I know the intentions of my father is to sacrifice me and I willingly go. You'll see me again. That's the only sign you get. Whatever you hear, whatever you see, you're only privileged based on your decision to follow me. If not, you're going to keep hearing it, but you won't see it. And you're going to come closer and closer and closer to a time in which you'll have no opportunity to decide your fate, which is eternal. And so in this language, Jesus knows that Jonah is not to be disrespected. It's interesting. After this great outcome for an evangelist, Jonah had a tood. He saw the mercy of God. He was expecting a barbecue, a fire from heaven to come down and consume Nineveh. He was rubbing his hands probably and just hoping for it. And God did just the opposite through the message that was given. He goes up on a cliff and pouts. I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew it. You always do these kind, gracious things to people that should be just judged. Well, if that were true, then what separates our culture from being what this culture is indicted for? Nothing. History just repeats itself and we just look different. See, I look different at night. Got a white cap, different Hawaiian shirt on. I wore my comfy slippies so that I could show you that I will go to bed when the service is over. So I look different. But God would say, it's just a look. The same things that are inside this heart can be that which turns a generation to God or without the heart that I have for God, it can turn a generation from God. And so even in the self-correction and even in the pout, God was gracious to put this big giant, I don't know, might have been one of the world's largest sunflowers that gave him shade from the pelting heat that was coming down as he griped against God and was still waiting for judgment pending. But when the two didn't change, a worm was sent to eat that stalk and the shade stopped and he broke out in a sweat and had to change his mind again about what God does. So, I wanted to build that so that you can see that God is using the history of the Jewish nation where these guys are experts in spirituality and in history to indict them. That's the only sign you're going to see to look back in what Jonah went through 
and to look ahead and what I will go through. But I'm coming out. He came out of a swimming spit tune. I'm going to come out of the grave. Once dead, Jonah was alive, kept. Some have suggested maybe he went into a sleep. Maybe he was artificially or spiritually resuscitated. I think he was down there talking to God. <laughs> a lot. And so Jesus says that without apology. He says it in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. This is Jesus again once more citing that he's greater than Solomon, that the temple they look back on historically and in awe and wonder and have that same awe and wonder with Herod's temple, a different work. Even the disciples were impressed with it. Jesus, not so much so. He was a lover of the work of that being a tribute that was purposed to always point people to God. But he also accurately predicted, which in about 40 years from his death, the temple would be torn apart, rendered, incapacitated for any services, services over no more. Isn't it great? We don't have to say that this night. We're in a service. We're here in the house of God. It's a beautiful structure. The Lord did it by the hands of saints and those whose hearts and eyes and ears have been fixed on the Lord. And so this generation, he's referring to them, but it can have application to us. See, that's the thing about the Bible. It's past tense history has application on our present tense condition or culture. It indeed will be that generation, the Ninevites who repented, that will be able to stand up and cite these individuals on a day in which judgment awaits them for rejecting Jesus. And so every generation will have a people group, and we would say most assuredly those who stopped what they were doing to do the work and the will of God through faith, in belief, and waiting with assurance that he was coming and he has not fallen asleep on the throne and he will accomplish everything that concerns us, satisfying the promises that we have waited for. Some seemingly longer than others, but what does it matter as long as you were able to say, and he fulfilled his word to me. And he does. Generation by generation, lineage by lineage, those men are going to indict you guys because you were actually, though, robed spiritually and ought to be representing me and knowing me you were a part of an evil and adulterous generation. You will stand indicted. He moves on to cite another historical figure that goes back to the reign of Solomon. David would be considered the greatest king of Israel. That won't be taken away from him. 
Solomon was one that would be picturing a kingdom that was vast and one in which on all sides peace had been secured. And the love of God was evidenced in the fruitfulness and in the grandiose construction of Jerusalem according to the word that was given to David on the design of the temple and of the city. Solomon would satisfy that and be a picture of that kingdom that will come on earth. So I've been to Jerusalem, but what it is today is marginal to what it was back in Jesus' time, and that was marginal to what it was in Solomon's time. Exceedingly great splendor that we cannot even fully imagine. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Jonah is here. A greater than Solomon is here. You guys know Solomon? Now I'm, I'm saying you guys know Solomon, but I'm actually saying that Jesus is saying that to them. And they would have had an awareness that this queen was on the other side, very likely of the ocean, somewhere probably in northern Africa is our presumption, Sheba. But she was, in some regards, the iconic figure of wealth and in peace for her kingdom as he was in his kingdom. And it's interesting. She was Gentile who was wooed by the marvelous works of God through Solomon, the undeniable wisdom that he had. It's kind of a picture of what God is doing by the church, which literally was gathered from the Gentile community to be brought in to provoke a jealousy. But we come literally as a bride on pilgrimage to our Solomon picture, Jesus, the bridegroom. That's the story that we find in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is a love story between a great and marvelous prince of the land and a Shulamite who esteems herself lightly among those who seemingly had greater proximity, the Jewish maidens. And yet Solomon's eyes were for her as Solomon would picture that in what Jesus' eyes would be for his bride. And we've made pilgrimages from far away in our hearts and far away in our minds as a testimony. So where do we go with this with regard to we want to see a sign? That which will be given to us is that which has been proclaimed by the Lord himself. Paul the Apostle penned it. For Thessalonians, it's a classic book that says concerning the trump of God, those who are the dead in Christ will rise first and those who remain will be caught up with him. Corinthians declares it's in the twinkling of an eye. We can't even imagine that, how fast it'll be. But even if that's fast enough to impress you, I can't think of something more impressive than to be absent from this body and to be present with him. Though somebody's going to have to deal with this shell, I won't have to be dealing with anything anymore. 
except to be in the beautiful presence of God, the indivisible nature of God. I don't know how it all works. I just know it's not going to be a cloud bank. I'm not going to be given a diaper at the gate with a bow and arrow shooting things. It's going to be everything that is superior to anything that causes us to marvel. In every attribute of the senses, God will satisfy us perfectly. So I want to go in advance just to be able to maybe provoke some of you on thoughts regarding faith and signs that you don't need to ask for because God has already established those things. One of them that I'm going to move from Genesis towards will be found in Judges 6. I think that for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you realize we actually went through this. And the area that I want you to look at specifically, because I've really got to boil this down, is 6. And we're going to pick it up in the 36th verse. But I'm going to anchor it. So keep your place there. It's just one page. In verse 11 of 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. That's where I'm leaving it right there. The Lord is with you. Huh? See, he was hearing this and he was seeing it. When we see this term in particular, angel of the Lord, it is a Christophany, the appearance of Jesus in advance of being incarnate and through ultimately the womb of a woman. All God, all men, no doubt, no problem. But the salutation is important. The Lord is with you. That's a statement that is to be received in faith. And how... Would you be able to deny it <laughs> in such a time of visitation when it's evident he sees and hears? He's talking. There's communication going on here. And then Gideon classically says, as you and I have as well, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Do you have, why has all this happened to us? When the Lord has both given us an advance on it in his word, but that's not even what the salutation was about. He's complimenting Gideon on what that man is able to take as the evidence, the assurance that God's going to do something, that the Lord is answering perhaps the very prayer that was on his lips as he was wiping sweat from his brow while he's tossing Wheaties in the air, sorting out the grain from the chaff, doing so in a hidden location that he might not be taken advantage of by the Midianites who were a marauding group. They stole your grain and they expected for you to work again the next time they come back with their bags. Verse 36 tells us, though, something that's contrary to what this salutation represents. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece only, and 
it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Going back to that title, we want to see a sign. I do not fault people that use that term, I'm going to cast a fleece. But I will say, even as it was a blessing for me to hear, that's not what God requires of us. Belief is sufficient. If we come into our relationship with God, we trust him on a face-to-face level. If it is a fleece-to-fleece level, guess what you're always going to be asking the Lord to do, to validate what he says he's going to do by something that's going to be provocative, proof text. The proof was in the salutation, you're a valiant man and I'm going to use you. Gideon, I heard what you were speaking in your lips. I've come to address right now that your nation, the ones who are getting picked on, I'm going to lift them up and I'm going to scatter that enemy. I'm going to do it by you. But somehow as this happens, the assurance that he would have had in this face-to-face encounter becomes now necessitated with, I got to see it, to believe it. And that's what I would call moving from faith, which is the assurance of, to another form of faith, which is the reassurance of. It moves from assurance, the definition of faith, and the evidence of things not yet seen, meaning God's made it clear, he's touched your heart, your mind is open to it, all you have to do is act on it, wait on it, be patient, continue being endearing, but don't forget endurance in the process. And so the Lord hears this request and does it. And then, as you know, he'll ask for another thing. He'll ask for the reciprocal of this, the reverso. Okay, okay, that was probably a little bit too easy. I'm going to make it a little bit more complicated. Because that's what he asked for. Wool on the threshing floor, dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground. Then I shall know. But then he goes, oh, that was stupid. I got to make it more complicated, really to establish me and what I believe God can do. So I won't press into that. Just notice that that's what he'll do. He'll reverse the order on this. And so you move from assurance, which is the simplicity of the definition of faith. You're assured. He's given you the evidence, not yet seen, but nobody can take it from you. And you don't have to prove it to anybody. God will prove that through you to reassurance. Ooh, the doubts come in. Okay, let's try this out. And basically what you're doing is saying, I'm going to tell God what I'd like him to do. Because then I'll know if I'm really that mighty. God can be not complacent, but he can be very much complimenting himself by his grace to afford you over that bridge you've got across, which is doubt. But here's what happens, because we'll see actually that it leads to a demise later on in his, if you would, golden years of ministry. From assurance to reassurance, it leads to insurance. Okay, I'm going to hedge my bet here. I'm going to get just, I'm going to get mounds of money. I'm going to get soldiers and guards. I'm going to have a flock of sheep. And I'm going to do that so that anytime I need to have God validate it, I can work this experiment out in some even more complicated, tricky ways. And so that's one of the things that as we see Jesus both 
one confronting with these guys it's something that also needs to be confronted with us i would never ever presume to say that anyone that says i've got a fleece to lay out i never doctrinally go oh, brother nay nay thou surely is not demonstrating faith there heresy perhaps because i think we've all done that but one of the things that God eventually does is there's no sheep left for the fleece. It's just not there. In other words, he limits you on what it is he's willing to bargain for. And all that's left to do is to get on your face and say, God, got it. I'm yours. I remember I tried to, <laughs> I've shared it once, but I, I tried to pay God for the songs that he allowed me to write. I made this great deal. Lord, if you let me write a song, I'll write you a check. I did, till I was bankrupt. <laughs> I said, Lord, that really wasn't what you wanted from me, was it? <laughs> I had pulled like, I don't know. I was a teacher that saved up credit points, however the district worked out. I had sick days. I had money that went into an IRA, TSA. I accumulated wealth as a young single teacher. And I lost it. I got fleeced by my own fleecing. <laughs> the Lord didn't even save it for me. He goes, I like where you're putting your money. Because it was to him. But the problem was is that he never asked for it. Whereas the tithe and offering works just great. The tenth is just, I'm fine with that. You don't, you don't have to do this. But he let me. He let me. So moving back to this in some correlations that I think is important, for your notation, we want to see a sign. Acts 2.43, after we find the three really pinions of what the vital church did, it gathered together, it broke bread, moving from house to house, which is what they needed to do being a distinct work from the temple worshipers. That's what we know. They prayed. They, in other words, took communion, and they exchanged things gladly with one another. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, by the hands of the apostles, it said that signs and wonders followed, or that's the intent of that verse, meaning that God was making it evident that through believers, signs and wonders do not need to be ever asked for again, because you are a sign, you are a wonder, your soul was converted, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit, and so no one ever needs to doubt God, because you are the one that puts that doubt completely to rest, just by how he's made you. Isn't that great that God would do that through us? Vacillating at sometimes fearful in the exercise of our faith and our giftings. And the Lord said, yeah, I'm going to use you. Because somebody will identify with that kind of thing that you wrestle with because they wrestle with the same thing. But not only have I made you enduring, but you are enduring. I'm, I'm going to use you. And so Acts basically in that chapter tells us that through the hands of the apostles, it's true, we're not apostles but we are ambassadors of the Lord, and the Lord has used us as powerfully rooted by those apostles to establish the church, 
but in what we have been given, which is the ambassadorial, if you would, um, appointment, we get to do amazing things for God, wonderful things for God, and that people see. So that's Acts 2.43. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 tells us this with regard to not vacillating in your faith, requiring signs and wonders. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So sometimes you will ask yourself, why can I not see as well as I once did? Because the Lord's saying, that isn't the way I work. As you were maturing and growing, I permitted it but you are now mature and it's not necessary. I think these are lessons that I'm learning even as I'm growing older. I can't get my prescription wired in. And it might be that the Lord is simply reminding me about a speaker that I'm hearing. That's a speaker, isn't it? Which one is it? Keyboard monitor. But isn't it nice to hear the things that we can, you know, be perceptive about. And it's remedy, just like that. The Lord knew that it was a distraction to you. And he said, Rich, thanks for bringing that to my attention. I'm going to deal with it right now. <laughs> See? He's got it all under control. It was just a little buzz in my ear. And the Lord says, got it. I'm on it. And that, by the way, was through a talented and gifted ambassador who knew what button to push. I didn't want you going, you got to see this guy. He speaks to speakers and it, they, they, they start up and they quench. It was just a guy that's an ambassador that uses talents and gifts as the prompting happened. Romans ten seventeen. so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What am I hearing, Lord? Okay, this is where it's important. I did hear a speaker, but what I want to hear is a speaker. I want to hear what the Lord is speaking to me, to my heart, in which my ears are then made sensitive and my eyes are made clear. I actually don't hear as well as I once did. Something happened. I lost, my thoughts are as I lost 30% of my hearing in one given occasion. Boom, it was gone. And I realized that something had happened because it felt as though there were cotton balls and water in my ear. And the doctors were baffled by it. They could not figure out what had happened to me. But it was a time in which I was seeking the Lord very desperately. And I think personally he just said, so that nothing else confuses you, I'm taking away your hearing, that no one can persuade you, contrary to what your heart has already agreed on. And so I moved through a season in which my deafness began to diminish and without medication though that was the origin of solving my problem, but it didn't work. Nothing worked. And so there I am as a worship leader and where people are using monitors effectively, all I had was my heart and that internal voice in my head saying, hit that pitch, sing that note. They're harmonizing, stay away from it. Play your guitar. Smile as if nobody knows you're deaf. <laughs> And I never had to go, hey, what'd you say? I do now, but I don't have precise hearing. When I'm in a, a large theater of people that, that are voicing, I don't have distinct, accurate references with my hearing. 
So it's a little bit, you know, <laughs> I was going to use a reference, but we're almost through. I cited Hebrews 11, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Within that tells you that God has given you sufficient evidence not to doubt. Assurance, reassurance, stop. That's when you're doubting. Insurance means you're plotting. You're hedging your bets. There we go. That's it. That's the word for you tonight. We want to see a wonder or a sign. We have. Jesus is the sufficiency of that. You and I are the manifestation by the gifts of God for that very same thing. Isn't it amazing that God chose to reveal himself to a world that rejected him, but through you and I as believers, so distinctly and uniquely made, and he's choosing to reveal himself through us, whether you like it or not, he loves you very much to do that. It's amazing. And we get eternity to actually really get to know each other in the best sense as opposed to our feeble senses. I don't see that person quite like you do. I don't really know what he's saying all the time. I get that in my teachings. <laughs> so bring your thesaurus and your dictionary and you will. <laughs>